are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read the third chapter of Daniel. I hope you've read it. If you haven't, I hope you will read it uh, sometime during the day. There's 30 verses in the third chapter of the book of Daniel. Let me give you briefly the picture as uh, is given in this third chapter. In the third chapter of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden image. Some strange things about this. This image is uh, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and they play six musical instruments while he demands the whole world to bow down and worship this image. That reminds me of Revelation chapter 13, the last verse, where the Bible says, Here is wisdom. Uh, if any man have understanding, let him count the number, for the number is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And there's some uh, similarities between these two images. By the way, the first Gentile world ruler set up an image and demanded that everyone living bow down and worship this image to go along with this religion. The last Gentile world ruler will also set up an image and demand that the whole world bow down and worship his image. He'll be the Antichrist to head up the final world empire that's composed of ten kingdoms or countries come together. And these countries or kingdoms give their power and authority to the beast or the Antichrist, according to Revelation chapter 17. And uh, he demands worldwide worship also. So in Daniel 3, the king erects a golden image. And then he calls together all the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. And... Uh, he tells them at what time they hear the music playing that they're all to bow down to this great golden image that has been erected. And uh, <clears throat> there were three men that would not bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they would not bow down, and the king was um, angry. And one of the Chaldeans, or some of them, came to the king and said, there are certain Jews here that didn't bow down. They didn't obey you, and he said, that couldn't be true. I don't believe it. Go get them. And they brought these three Hebrews in, and he said, is it true? In other words, I don't really believe this. Is it true that you would just refuse to obey uh, me, the king of the whole world? The whole world's under my authority, and, and you three wouldn't obey. And they said, it is true. We wouldn't obey you. He said, I'll give you a second opportunity. We'll play again this time. If you bow down, everything will be all right. And if not, we're going to cast you into a fiery furnace. And they said, there's no need to play again. Our mind's already made up. We know what we're going to do before you strike up the music. We'll be not careful to answer thee, which literally means we already know what we're going to do. So as a result, they didn't strike up the music. The king just became very angry and commanded that these three Hebrews be thrown into the fiery furnace that had been heated seven times hotter than they normally heated. Well, the men threw a man, and the men who threw a man were burned, which is a beautiful type. We'll come back to that a little later if we have time. 
And the Hebrews, the only thing that was burned about them was the ropes that bound them. And then the king looked in and he saw four men. He said, now we threw three and I see four. And the fourth man I see is like the Son of God. And then he asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to step over to the door of the furnace. It's really funny, isn't it? He says, hey, come over here. So they came over the door. And uh, he had a little conversation with them. He said, say, that God you serve is a great God. He said, we're going to get you out of here. And uh, said, when we do, he said, we're going now, anybody who speaks a word against the God you serve, said, we're going to cut him in pieces and make his house a dunghill. And then in the last verse, verse 30 says, then God promoted these three Hebrews. Now, there are several things I want to call to your attention. First of all, the king's purpose in erecting this golden image. And I have to speculate a little here, but I think it's pretty sound speculation. You remember back in chapter 2, the king had had a dream. And you who were here the last two Sundays know that the dream that he had, in the dream he saw this great colossus with a golden head, silver chest and arms, midsection of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay mixed. And you remember the interpretation of the dream, I'm sure. For Daniel came out and said to the king, O king, thou art this head of gold. God has given you a kingdom. And he hath made you rule over all the earth. You have a world empire. That was the Babylonian empire. And he said, O king, after thee another shall arise, and it would be represented by the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. And the brass after the Medo-Persian empire, which would be the Grecian empire. And this is a matter of going back in history and seeing what empire followed the other, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian. Then the iron legs, the Roman empire, and then it was divided. In chapter 2, Daniel predicts, or God predicts through Daniel, 2,600 years of human history from the days of the Babylonian Empire to the days of the second coming of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords when he smashes all Gentile world rule and sets up his own kingdom. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, there is no indication in the Bible how much time elapsed between the time he had that dream and the time he built this great golden image. I don't know how much time he left. I'm speculating now, but here is what I think his purpose was. You see, he knew from the interpretation of the dream that he was the golden head, that is the Babylonian empire. So he made an image like the image that he had seen in his dream. The only difference is he didn't make the chest and arms of silver. He brought the gold on down to the chest and arms of silver. And he didn't make the midsection of brass. He brought the gold on down through the midsection. He didn't make the legs of iron. He brought the gold on down through the legs. And he didn't make the feet of iron and clay mixed. He brought the gold all the way down through the feet, and he left out the smiting stone. I think what he's saying here in the erection of the golden image, I am the golden empire. I am the king of the world. I am the head of the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel says, after me there's going to come another one. I'm going to build my own image in defiance to God's word and God's prophet, and it's going to be gold all the way. Nebuchadnezzar, from the crown of the image's head to the sole of the image's feet. He would not take God's prediction and prophecy that the Babylonian Empire was going to fall. He said, O king, live forever. I mean, the Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be followed by an inferior empire. 
and a third empire. Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule all the way from the crown of the image's head down to the crown of the sole of the image's feet. Defiance to God's word and God's prophet. <laughs> you know, today, men are acting in defiance to God's word. When God's word says things are going to happen a certain way, you may as well leave it alone. You're not going to change that. When the Bible said there'll be wars and rumors of wars till the end of the world, the end of the age, you may as well not try to bring about a world peace. Now, I'm not for fighting. I'm for making as much peace as you can. God said, blessed is the peacemaker and the Beatitudes. But I'm saying you can never bring about a worldwide peace through the human efforts of uh, federal governments. Impossible. The only way you'll have a worldwide peace is for the prince of peace to return and set up his own kingdom, a theocracy, and everybody bows down and worships him. That is God when he comes back in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But here the king, in defiance to God's word and God's prophet, says, I'm going to arrange human history like I want it, and we won't make room for other world empires. It'll be gold all the way. But his dream, and I mean, his plan and his, and his purpose didn't work out. The Medo-Persian Empire came exactly like Daniel said, and the Grecian Empire came exactly like Daniel said, and the Roman Empire came and divided exactly like Daniel said. And I've got news for you, there'll be another world empire made up of ten co countries come together, just like Daniel said, and there'll be a final world empire, which will be God's kingdom, ruled over by God's Son, just like Daniel said. I speculate in the second place by saying not only did he erect the image in defiance to God's prophet and God's word, but in the second place he erected the image for the purpose of uniting man together in one religion. And that's exactly what he did. He said, we're going to call all the people of the kingdom together. And remember, he had a worldwide kingdom. Everybody is going to come together, and when we play the music, they're going to bow down and worship the image. He sought to weld his empire together in a common faith. Did you know... That that's a smart move, and you must give him credit for that. Because men will fight for their religion quicker than they'll fight for anything else, even if it's a false religion. I've been out visiting and had people who really had a false religion, and I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that if they deny Jesus is the Son of God, they're the Antichrist, First John chapter 4. I'm not judging. I'm just reading what the Bible said about them. And yet they were willing to fight for that religion and stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you and argue and raise their voice and get faster and foam at the mouth and their face turn red and they say, we're right, we're right, we're right. Men will fight for their religion. And so the king was smart in saying, if I could weld my empire together by getting everybody to adopt the same religion, I would assure myself of continued success and no empire would ever take over from me. But he failed. And that leads me to the second thought in the message, and that is his proclamation. In verse 2 through 5, he calls them together, and his proclamation was, we're going to play this music. And when we play this music, we want everybody to bow down and worship this image. Now, music belongs to angels. Music belongs to the church. Music belongs to the saints. Music is for the soul that overflows with gratitude and glory. I like to hear a congregation sing. I like to hear this choir sing. 
There's something about music that stirs me. Music belongs to God. It belongs to heaven. And what a great prostitution that Satan has taken music and used it for his own benefit. And I'm appalled at the way we cheapen gospel music. I've heard people say, we're going to sing a gospel song, and it has in it everything but the gospel. I used to sing such songs as this, and I thought I was singing a gospel song. If working and praying has any reward, then surely some morning I'll see my dear Lord. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to work my way to heaven, working and praying, and God's going to reward me with salvation for working. That's contrary to the Bible. Salvation's by grace through faith. A choir ought to be just as selective in the songs that it sings as the preacher is in the messages that he preaches. A soloist ought to be just as selective in the songs that he or she sings as the preacher is in the messages that he preaches. Because most Christians' doctrine is not based upon their Bible study, but it's based upon their listening to so-called gospel songs. And they can quote more gospel songs than they can scripture. I used to cite gospel songs to prove my point. <laughs> till I found out the gospel songs were not inspired of God. Not like the Bible's inspired. Now, a poet can be inspired to write a poem. A man can be inspired to write a song. But Bible inspiration is God choosing out of the vocabulary of the writers words to match the truths that God had revealed. That's verbal inspiration. No song has ever been written like that except for songs that are found in the book of Psalms. I like to hear singing. I watch this congregation as you sing. And you know that's one thing I like about you precious people. You do sing. I've been in churches where, you know, if you sung, you felt like you were singing a solo and everybody looked at you. Have you ever been in a place like that? I wanted to sing, the music sounded good, and I started to sing Amazing Grace, and this fellow on this side looked, and that fellow looked. But here you don't look around because everybody's singing, and you feel like the nut if you're not singing here. And I like that. I like to see old men sing with their voices cracking. And though they don't say hallelujah, there's a hallelujah in their song. And I like to see the little children sing. My little KK, I often ask her to sing for me. She's three years old. And there's one particular song I like to hear her sing. And she sings it, when the Savior left the sky, and for sinners came to die, in his mercy passed not by little ones like me. Little ones like me, little ones like me. In his mercy passed not by little ones like me. I always cry a little when she sings that. Singing is beautiful. And you know something? The devil has prostituted the music, and it's... Uh, has a syncopated beat and everything else, and there's no good gospel singing anymore. Very little of it. Everything has to, we have to go like the world. If they rock, we got to rock. <laughs> if they play fast, we got to play fast. I'm not for it. I'm against it. <laughs> Just for the records, write that down. I'm against it. I like solid gospel singing. Amen. Solid gospel singing. And so the proclamation was, you bow down when we play. Now, they played six musical instruments. I'll come back to that if I have time a little later. Now, the third thing I call your attention to is the penalty in verse 6. In verse 6, he said, Whosoever will not fall down in worship shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. If you don't go along with our one world religion, 
One thing's going to happen to you. We're going to get rid of you. We're just not going to have anybody not going along. The final Gentile world ruler, the Antichrist, Satan's son, will also have a universal religion. He'll also erect an image in Daniel chapter 13, and he'll also say everybody bows down in worship, and he'll also say, if you don't go along, we're going to behead you. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, after the tribulation period and Jesus returns, the Bible said, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded, headed for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not received his mark in their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived or were made alive and reigned with Christ a thousand years. During the tribulation period, you'll have some people who will not go along with the one world religion. It won't be you people who are saved. You won't be here. But it'll be people who are here that are saved after the rapture, who had an opportunity to be saved because they had never heard the gospel before the rapture of the church or the catching away of the saints. Thus, they'd have an opportunity afterwards. And they have to seal their testimony with their own blood, according to the book of Revelation. Isn't it strange that this image was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and they played 6 musical instruments while the king said, Everybody goes along with my religion or else. And isn't it strange that the final world empire, that great Gentile world ruler that the world, by the way, is waiting for now. They're waiting for his appearance. And the majority of the world would receive him at the snap of your finger because they want a man who can stop war and bring in prosperity and bring in peace. The world's being conditioned for the coming of the Antichrist. Now, when the Antichrist comes, the Bible says he's going to bring about a peace. He's going to bring about prosperity, and the world will receive him gladly. They're so hungry for him. I'm for peace, friends. I'm for peace. But I'm not for peace at any price. You die or else. And this last image, the Bible said the fellow whom this image is erected for is a man, and his number is 666. What a similarity. This is not the first time that Satan ever tried to have a one-world religion and to unify or will people together by all of them having the same religion. He did the same thing in Genesis 11 under Nimrod. He's doing the same thing here in Daniel 3 under Nebuchadnezzar. And he'll do the same thing yet in the future. The devil has not given up the idea that the world is someday going to worship me as God. You know how he became the devil? Isaiah chapter 4, 14 says he became the devil because he was not satisfied to rule under God. But he said, I'm going to exalt my throne above God. I'm going to be like the Most High. And someday, the Bible says, he's going to stand in a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And he's going to say he is God and demand worldwide worship. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to have miraculous power to give life to the image that he erects and cause the image to walk and cause the image to speak. The penalty was, you're going to die unless you bow down. And that brings me to the next point, and that is the prostration in verse 7. When they played the music, everything all over the world bowed down. Remember, this is a worldwide empire. This is not a city. It's a worldwide thing, and everybody bows down. They just prostrate themselves. I'm amazed today at people who will prostrate themselves and fall down before false religions and before 
uh, something just because a fellow happens to have so much education and so many degrees, we just assume that he's right. Well, if you go on that premise, then the th three Hebrews who failed about them were wrong. They were outnumbered. The whole world was against the only ones who wouldn't bow. They were outnumbered. People say to me today, don't you see the tides going in this direction? Yes, I do. But I'm not going in that direction. And the world today, the ecumenical movement comes along, and it sounds so flowery and wonderful and sweet. Let's all get together and love everybody. <laughs> Let's all join hands and make a better world. And the pop singers are singing, there's a new world a-coming. <laughs> they're thinking that they're going to bring about a new world. I've got news for them. There is a new world a-coming. But not because of them, in spite of them, it's coming. It's coming when the prince comes. A new world's coming. Everybody just fell down. One mass crowd, prostrate. Yeah, I'm an old footy duddy. I'm old-fashioned. I'm obsolete. I'm out of style. I don't preach like the average preacher. I know that. Huh. The average preacher is an expert at almost saying something and never saying anything. <laughs> The average congregation wants a preacher who can please everybody in the congregation, whether he's a dope addict or a drunkard or a hearted or a homemonger or whatever he is. He wants him to preach almost up to the point where he offends him and back off. And I just think you ought to just preach and slap people down with the Bible. I don't fit. I'm a misfit. But I'm not supposed to fit. Jesus said you're not of the world. I'm saying they prostrate themselves. I'm not going to prostrate myself before the ecumenical movement. I'm not going to prostrate myself before false religions. I'm not going to prostrate myself and join hands with a person who does not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to prostrate myself and go along with a fellow who hooks up with another fellow that cusses Jesus Christ and calls him an illegitimate son of a German soldier. I'm not going to hook up with that. I'm going to stand for the Word of God if it makes me against everybody in the world. Someone said to Martin Luther, once the great reformer, Mr. Luther, don't you know the whole world is against you? Mr. Luther said, then, sir, I'm against the whole world. And that's it. But there's three fellows who wouldn't bow down. I like that. Bless God, there's three fellows who said, we're not going to bow. They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. They stood there. And these Chaldeans had a little professional jealousy because God had elevated because God had elevated these people through the king and given them a prominent place in the kingdom. And they had been watching for something so they'd get even with them. So they said, There are certain Jews here. Watch out, boy, when you go talking about Jews, you're gonna get the fire. The Jews didn't burn, the fellows who tried to throw them in the fire burned, and that's always true. Certain Jews are here. Old king, he said, boy, you gave the decree. And they just, they just wouldn't bow down to you. King said, oh, is that so? I don't hardly believe it. Call them in. They called in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. That was their real names. The king gave them these other names, named them after pagan gods. He changed their name. He changed their location. But he couldn't change their hearts. <laughs> They may beat you and change your frame and make you look like something you're not, but they can't change your heart. 
Inside, they were just like a steel rod. They wouldn't bow to bend. And here the pressure came. The king said, All right, O Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo, do you not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I've set up? Now if you be ready, he said, when you hear the tire sound of the cornet and the flute and the harp and the sackbut and the psaltery and the dulcimer and all kinds of music, ye shall fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if not, he said, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you? And I like their reply. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. That expression, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, literally means, O king, we do not even have to discuss it. O king, we do not, we do not have to consider it. Oh, King, we do not have to even think about it. We know now what we're going to do. We can answer you on the spot. We will not bow down to your golden image. We won't go along. And the king was furious. Now, they could have offered many excuses for bowing and listen carefully. They could have said Nebuchadnezzar was their friend and had been good to them, and at least they owed him one favor. They could have said, after all, he's the king. And you're supposed to be subject to authorities. And they're right in that. Romans 13 said, Let every soul be subject to higher powers, for there is no power except it be ordained of God. And he that resisteth the power resisteth God. That's right. But when human law enters the realm of religion and commands disobedience to God's law, then duty to God comes first. These boys had been raised on the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. They would have violated both of them by bowing one time. They were courteous in chapter 1. Daniel made a suggestion in chapter 1 and didn't offer a flat refusal. But he wasn't put in a place to have to make a flat refusal. These men had to refuse to bow because now then, human law had entered the realm of religion and issued a command directly contrary to God's law. They could have concluded that it was useless to resist. After all, the whole world's bowing down, and we're the only three that's not bowing, and just three refusing. It's useless. What can we accomplish by it? Let me give you an illustration. We voted not long ago in DeKalb County whether or not we'd like to legalize liquor in DeKalb County. The vote was about uh, 40,000 to 20,000 to legalize it. They're going to vote again April. I think it's April the 4th. This time we're going to vote on liquor by the drink, whether you want that or not. A lot of Christians are going to say, well, last time they voted us, outvoted us 40,000 to 20,000. It's useless to go and vote again. You know which way it's going to go. It's useless to vote. Now, if I was the only one who voted against it and I knew that I was the only one who was going to vote against it, I'd still be up there when the polls opened to vote against it. And the Christian should stand for what is right even when he knows it is useless. They knew it was useless to resist. 
Even when you're outnumbered, you ought to stand. Even when it's useless, at least sound off and let the folks hear you. They could have said, we have high offices, and we cannot afford to lose our positions and give up our opportunities. After all, in these high positions, you see, we have an opportunity to witness we wouldn't have if we give up that position, so we're going to do wrong to get a chance to do right a little later, and I'm sure we lead a lot of folks to Christ holding these big high offices. We don't lose that opportunity. Applesauce. It's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. It's never right to compromise. Never has been, never will be, and you're going to face God for it someday. And yet a lot of Christians are willing to go along with what's wrong, thinking that later on they're going to have an opportunity to do something good. That's wrong reasoning. Sure they'd have had an opportunity if they'd have fed in good with the king. While the early martyrs were offered their lives, if they would just but just but cast a touch of incense on the fire that burned before the emperor. But rather than just cast a touch of incense on the fire that burned before the image of the emperor, they chose to be fed to lions and burned at the stake. We've got a weak, wishy-washy, potato-strained, backbone, rose water-squirting, Casper milk toast bunch of Christians today that need some spiritual backbone, like these fellas. We are not going to bow. They could have said everybody else is doing it. <laughs> Did you ever tell your parents that? Daddy, everybody's doing it. Everybody. Yes, your daughters let the skirts down about two more inches, and they say, oh, goodness. Everybody's wearing many skirts. Good night. Good night. Everybody's bowing down to this. It's the thing to do. Everybody's doing it. They said, not everybody, King. Three of us not doing it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're not doing it. <laughs> Easy to do it when everybody else is doing it, isn't it? Easy to follow that kind of thing. Everybody's, no, no, no. They could have reasoned that. They could have said that bowing would only be paying respect to the king and in their heart. They wouldn't mean it. You know, it's funny how you'd make an excuse to do a thing if you really want to do it. <laughs> like the little boy when his mother said, sit down. And he wouldn't sit down. She made him sit down, held him down. He said, well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> well, I don't know, like the girl, you know, Baptist... I won't tell that because this goes on the radio. Come back tonight and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> but instead of bowing down in verse 17, notice what they said. The king said, all right, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. They said, all right, okay. In verse 17, they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand. Now, they wasn't sure they'd be delivered out of the furnace, but they were sure they were going to get out of his hand. We may be burned in that furnace, but we're going to get away from you. You can count on that, they said. And I like what they said. They said, our God is able and he will. What they're saying is God could do it, and not only that, they said God would do it. There's a lot of Christians who say, I believe God can. I believe God could heal me if he wanted to. 
I believe God could give us a great Bible-believing soul-winning child. I believe he could. But these three Hebrews not only believed he could, they believed he would. They said, our God is able and he will. I like that. I wish we had a house full of folks who not only said he could, but who said he would. Our God whom we serve is able to to deliver us and he will deliver us out of our hand. Now, the persecution. Verse 19 through verse 23. They bound them, their coats, their scarves, their caps and all, and cast them into the fiery furnace. That's their persecution. You know, God's people are never immune to the fire. God never promised us an easy trip to heaven. When the disciples started across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said, go across to the other side. He assured them that they'd make it to the other side, but he did not tell them there would not be a storm on the way over. And there was a storm. He didn't promise us a life without storm, but he promised us a safe journey. I like that. I've had a lot of storms. I've had a little fire myself. But fire can't hurt gold. It only helps it. The fire shall not hurt me. He only designs my dross to consume. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.